0: This is Kick Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. Support for today's show comes from the new Amazon series, Homecoming, directed by Sam Esmail, the creator of Mr. Robot. Based on the critically acclaimed podcast by Eli Horowitz and Mika Bloomberg, Homecoming stars Julia Roberts as Heidi Bergman a caseworker for the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. But four years after starting a new life, Heidi is faced with questions about why she left the facility, and she realizes there's a deeper story beyond the one she's been telling herself. Don't miss Homecoming. Stream now, only on Amazon Prime Video. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. General Stanley McChrystal served for 34 years in the U.S. Army, rising from a second lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division to a four-star general in command of all American and coalition forces in Afghanistan. During those years, he worked with countless leaders and pondered an ancient question, what makes a leader great? He came to realize that there's no simple answer because leadership is not what you think it is and never was. Now in a new book called Leaders, Myth and Reality, McChrystal profiles 13 famous leaders from a wide range of eras and fields, from corporate CEOs to politicians and revolutionaries, to explore how leadership works in practice and challenge the myths that complicate our thinking about leaders. And today I'm honored to have General Stanley McChrystal on the podcast to share how he came to reassess the legacy of his own hero, Robert E. Lee, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, how he personally learned that the man at the top often gets credit that he doesn't deserve, and why in the military and in other fields, leaders aren't always judged by their results. He discusses the 15th century Chinese admiral who's become the symbol for that country's global ambitions, why he didn't realize that Coco Chanel was a real person, and one leadership flaw that he shares with, of all people, Walt Disney. He reveals why he decided to include his former enemy in combat, Abu Masab al-Zarqawi, in the book, and what it was like to get into the dark mind of the al-Qaeda and Iraq leader and eventually hunt him down and kill him. Plus, he says he has no specific political ambitions— but you won't hear any Sherman-esque statement from this general, and he gives the reason why. Coming up with General Stanley McChrystal in just a moment. Stanley McChrystal retired from the U.S. Army as a four-star general after 34 years in the military and having commanded the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, in Iraq, and then he commanded the International Security Assistance Force and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a partner at the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting firm based in Virginia. His previous books, My Share of the Task and Team of Teams, were both New York Times bestsellers, and now he's followed it up with his latest bestseller titled Leaders, Myth and Reality. General Stanley McChrystal, thank you for your service and thanks for sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Leaders, Myth and Reality, but I have to confess that I usually don't enjoy books, that have the titles like, say, Churchill on Leadership or Lincoln on Leadership, because the moment an author identifies someone as a leader to be emulated, It's just a given that they then have to whitewash their entire biography and ignore all the flaws and all the mistakes in order to make their case that they are a leader to be emulated. Um, And my thinking, I guess, has always been, what good is a leadership book if you can't learn from the leader's mistakes as well as their successes? With leaders' myth and reality, uh, you seem to be trying to change that.
1: We are. um, After many years of trying to learn leadership— Uh, being taught it and had it demonstrated to me and then the opportunity to try to practice it and then studying it and writing about it to an extent. At this point in life, pretty late, I came to the conclusion that I and my co-authors didn't really understand what leadership is. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to go back to first principles and truly identify what is it and why can't we get our arms around it.
0: And you talk about how your decision to throw away a portrait of Robert E. Lee in the aftermath of Charlottesville actually led you to rethink how we define leadership. As a fellow West Point alum, that can't have been an easy decision for you.
1: No, it was a really tough decision. In fact, I had grown up with Robert E. Lee as probably the penultimate example of leadership for me. And Mm there had been a personal connection. I'd grown up living near his boyhood home. I'd gone to Washington Lee High School. I'd gone to West Point many years after... Robert E. Lee, but I'd follow the same path. He served 32 years in the United States Army. I served almost just about that number, 34. And at West Point, when you arrive, there are many statues of generals and people to emulate. But Robert E. Lee was always special for everyone. He was this character that was nearly perfect. And he was depicted that way. There were paintings of him. I lived in Lee barracks. (laughs) And so you couldn't be Robert E. Lee, but he could be a beacon that you could try to move closer to. So I spent a career thinking about that. And when I was a second lieutenant, my wife, young wife, now 41 years of marriage, gave me a painting. It was a cheap, actually it was a print, painted over with clear acrylic to look like a painting. She paid $25 for this thing framed and gave it to me. And I treasured it for the next 40 years. Every quarter, set of quarters we lived and I hung it up because for me, it was an example of the values that I believed in. And when people came to my house, it was my way of subtly telling them what I valued in leadership. Mm-hmm. And then after Charlottesville, in the spring of 2017, Annie, my wife came in to me and said, I think you need to get rid of the picture. And I disagreed. I said, no. And she, why would I do that? You gave it to me, honey. And she goes, no. I think it's signaling something you don't believe in. And I said, no, he's a non political general. And she goes, well, maybe he is to you. But to many people, he may be a symbol of white supremacy or th- people that have hijacked the idea. Yeah. So we, we talked for about a month till I uh, became convinced. And one Sunday morning, I took it off the wall and threw it away. And that was just when we were beginning this book. And so we made the decision to profile Robert E. Lee in the book and take a very careful relook at how I thought about Robert E. Lee and
0: leadership in general. And you said that the painting was sort of a symbol for all of the qualities of leadership that you found valuable in Lee. What were some of those qualities that you used to admire about him and perhaps still admire about him? I, I, I still do.
1: He was, even as a cadet at West Point, known as the Marble Man his fellow cadets now that wasn't completely um a compliment because he was a little stiff yeah. he wasn't the kind of guy you hung out with
0: right you you said marble man not marlboro man you Right. Know that's right okay.
1: <laughs> Exactly. Okay. and he was uh, very upright duty was the word he would have associated with himself he was a serious guy whereas other army officers on the uh on the Frontier Post, she used to often drink too much or gamble. He didn't do those things. He was focused on being studious, being upright. He was courteous. And when people would describe him, they would describe him as slightly larger than life, maybe a little
0: too perfect. <laughs> kind of the stoic ideal, I guess, huh?
1: Exactly. But then 17 years into his career, the Mexican War erupts. And Robert E. Lee goes to Mexico, and he's a staff officer. He's an engineer officer, and that's usually not a position where you come out a hero. But in fact, in the combat of the Mexican War, he shines. And maybe the most respected mid-grade or young officer in the Army to come out of the war, so much so that General Winfield Scott, the overall commander, described him as the best soldier in combat that he'd ever seen.
0: I always hear people talk about how he was so honorable and he was the consummate military officer, something to aspire to. And yet, I mean, isn't the first job of a great military leader, an honorable military leader, not to wage war against your own country? (laughs) How do we reconcile that? Well, it's hard to, because for years I reconciled it that he had just been loyal to his
1: earlier association with Virginia. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I took the oath on the plane at West Point to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and so did he. And the country had been founded by his role model, George Washington. And so when Robert E. Lee faces his Plutarchian moment in the spring of 1861, he has to make a value judgment. And what's interesting is he almost doesn't make a judgment. When you read the stories, he said, I am against secession of the South – but I will do what my native state does. And Virginia was awaiting a popular vote, a referendum. And so he basically gave his decision to the popular voters of Virginia who became emotional over President Lincoln's decision to reinforce Fort Sumter. And so they voted to secede. And so the most important decision of his life he almost didn't make. And then he spent the next four years trying to destroy the United States.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that this consummate leader sort of abdicated his leadership duties at the most critical point in his career to the voters. And it doesn't make him evil. Yeah,
1: What it makes him is human. It Mm -hmm. makes him flawed. It makes him like you and I.
0: Right. And to that point, you open the book by comparing two different paintings of Lee's hero, General George Washington crossing the Delaware. There's, of course, that famous one that we've probably all seen, and then there's another more contemporary painting. Tell us about that second one. Sure. The,
1: the, uh, well, the first picture, of course, is the one that's hanging in the White House. Yeah. And it's got Robert e. or, uh, George Washington in a small boat crossing the Delaware River to go attack the British on Christmas night. And we've all seen it. He's standing and leaning forward, and everybody else is down there rowing. And we never thought about it. We said, well, that's a leader. That's George Washington. But if you really look at that picture, it's absurd. In a, a small boat that would tip easily, he's leaning forward. You
0: and know, standing. Yeah,
1: no <laughs> yeah. no military True. guy, no sane person is going to do that in an icy <laughs> river at night, yeah. and at least not do it twice. <laughs> so not too many years ago, a, a gentleman commissioned a painter to do a more realistic version, and now it's on a flat-bottom barge, which is reportedly the boats that were actually used. He is standing essentially holding on to a cannon that's being moved across. And it's realistic.
0: It's how a sane person would cross a river at night. The The way that he's depicted in the first painting, it's the way a general who wants to get killed that's would right. probably would have crossed the Delaware. Not, right. not a smart military commander.
1: That's right. And yet that's how yeah. we want to view our leaders. We mm-hmm. want to view them as David beating Goliath. Yeah. We want to believe that they are larger than life, that they are almost incapable of error.
0: Yeah, and brave to the point of being foolhardy, which is completely unrealistic.
1: (laughs) That's right, exactly.
0: And you take apart uh, actually three of what you call the biggest myths about leaders in this book, and I want to deal with each of these one by one. Um, First of all, there's this idea that there is a recipe for success. At West Point, I know that you must have spent gosh, countless hours studying history's great military battles and looking for replicable strategies. Is there something wrong with that? Well, it's
1: education and it's helpful. It's a template, but it's never a solution because there are mm-hmm. no two battles, no two wars, no two situations alike. And so when people spend the rest of their career looking for a time to do what Hannibal did at Cannae or somebody else did in a battle, they're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. There are principles that you learn, but it's the same with leadership. If you, if you look at George Washington or Robert E. Lee or any leader you want to pick, and you say, okay, how were they? And you write that list of traits or behaviors. Some people even try to stand like the person that their hero. <laughs> My father told me he was – he entered the military out of Westport right after World War II, and he said there was a whole population of Patton knockoffs,
0: really? U.S.
1: Army officers <laughs> who tried to act like George Patton. And of course, only George Patton can be George Patton.: Yeah. But the profanity, the, the, the uh, pistols and all like, that, that you, you can't try to do something that worked for
0: someone else. So there's no list. there's no genetic leadership uh, plan. Uh, Yeah, and Patton himself was a pretty deeply flawed military hero, and I imagine those people just completely overlooked all of those aspects as well.
1: That's right. If you look at someone like Patton, you see someone who was colorful and profane and aggressive. But if you really decide why he was effective, he was a student of war. He Mm. knew the battlefields from World War I of where he fought in World War II— People don't spend a lot of time thinking about that side of Patton. They think about him yelling at people and slapping soldiers and pushing (laughs) tanks on. And that's a
0: superficial, almost cartoon version. Mm. And we do that often with leaders. The second myth, uh, which is this tendency to misattribute success to the person at the top. Uh, you say that you came to this realization when you were writing your own memoir a few years ago. What did you learn about successes and who gets credit when you were doing that? Yeah, that uh, we call it the attribution myth. And I, I
1: started writing my memoirs in 2010. And when I first thought about it, I said, well, how hard can it be? I was there. <laughs> so I know. And I brought a young man who was about a year out of Yale University, an English uh, major, to come help me. And we worked together for two and a half years to write this. And So the first thing we did was we did a detailed timeline and all the significant events I'd been a part of. In many cases, I'd made a decision and there'd been an outcome for which I received either credit or blame. And that was the causal effect. But when we Did the work, we did a whole bunch of interviews, like a hundred interviews with people who were involved. And the result was very humbling because what happened was I had a view of something, and it was almost never wrong, but it was always stunningly incomplete. Like I would make a decision and then something would happen and I'd say, Well, that's why. But then when we did the interviews, we found so many other people doing so many other things that affected it more than I did, of which I was totally unaware. Until after the fact, when we did the interviews and other contextual factors, that suddenly I realized that I was a figure in my memoirs, but I wasn't even the central figure in the story of my life. Every situation was so complex that I was just a piece of it. And that was an eye-opener. That was a little humbling, pretty disturbing. (laughs) And if, if we really made this public you know we pay ceos and all these incredible amounts of money for the success or failure of the company when in many cases they're a much smaller factor than people want to attribute and that that plays out time and again when you study when you study it and so yeah. understanding that leadership is actually an interaction between leaders followers and contextual factors it's almost it's an emergent property almost like a chemical reaction And so it's not something that I pull out of my pocket and throw at you. I'm going to throw some leadership at you. Instead, it's this thing that happens, and it's different every time, and so it's never repeatable with exactly the same personality and and whatnot. And that's
0: the second myth. And then the third myth was results myth. Right. You sort of give lie to this myth that leadership is always merit-based and leaders are always chosen based on results. Coming up through the ranks in the military bureaucracy, is this something that you personally witnessed probably more than a few times, in fact?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you pick leaders, you elect them, you select them, you support them, all the things we do, and you think you've got this hard edge, very objective eye and make tough decisions. In reality, that doesn't correlate to performance at all. In mm-hmm. fact, we follow serial failures, leaders fill an emotional requirement for us much more than they do an objective requirement. And so I saw in the military people with certain traits would be promoted and followed and heralded. In fact, they weren't very good soldiers. And other people who were great soldiers and were successful, they just didn't generate the same feeling, either in subordinates or or seniors. So, you know, we want to believe that the results part and therefore who we elect or we follow was the right choice.
0: But it's usually much more emotion than reality. Yeah, and we see this in politics. People often follow the person who speaks to their heart or gets them angry about something than necessarily the smartest guy or the guy with the the longest resume. And we will
1: stick with them long after it's been disproven. Adolf Hitler in 1944, there was an attempt on his life by German officers, And the German population was largely angry at the German officers for trying to kill him. And this was 11 years after Hitler took power, and he had already ruined the country. It's got to do we emotionally buy a product and then we love it.
0: Well, yeah. And in, in some respects, to give up on a leader is admitting that you made a mistake and that you were wrong. So we're That's always right. reluctant to do that, I guess. Exactly. Um, I want to talk about how you went about writing this book and the criteria that you were looking for in leaders. Um, in selecting the bios to include in the book, what were you looking for? Well, it's it's funny. When we started, we
1: knew we wanted to do a number of profiles of leaders, but it was a little contradictory because we were going to write a book about leadership that we knew one of the arguments would be we get too focused on individuals, not on right. the wider picture. And so you say, well, yeah. then why are you writing about them? right One, well, that's because that's how we've always thought of them. So we went back to Plutarch, the original biographer, who had bu- done biographies of uh, Roman and Greek leaders, and we used that as a basic model. But the idea was we wouldn't try to compare leaders – in terms of traits or what worked, the real question was, why did they emerge as leaders? What about them or what about the times or people around them that actually did it? And pretty early in the process, we came out with a sort of recognition that leadership isn't what we think it is, and it never has been. Hmm. And you you referred earlier to the, the myths that we came up with, and we started with this recognition that we've always looked through leadership, through these mythological lenses. And I had this child's book that my mother got when she was five in 1929 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she used to read it to me. And it was Greek tales for tiny tots. And one of them I remembered was Atlas. And there was this hand-drawn picture of a guy in a G-string standing on top of a mountain holding up the sky. And I'd look at that and I'd go, well, that's strange. But then as we think about it, for years and years and years – people assumed that if the sky didn't fall in, something or somebody's holding it up. And myths are designed to explain what's otherwise unexplainable. And so people said, well, if it's not falling in, somebody's holding it up, Atlas on top of the mountain doing it, that's good excuses or good explanation as any, and they just bought it. (laughs) Well, we've done the same thing with leaders. We look at leaders and someone says that, the person who saved the West in World War II was Winston Churchill. And we sort of look at that and we go, okay, write that down. But, of course, that's an incredibly simplistic description of one leader's role. He was part of this larger equation. And so we came up with these three myths, which we call the the formulaic myth, which is the idea that there's a checklist of how to be a great leader. And when you actually look at (coughs) results— That doesn't equate, doesn't correlate to success. Right. The second and, was, and
0: those don't translate across nah. different careers and different eras, and so forth.
1: <laughs> and one of the reasons yeah. we picked these very uh, different thirteen leaders for our book is because they were all leaders, but other than that, there are very few similarities mm-hmm. between their background, how they operated, at times, etc. Yeah,
0: we found that leadership's intensely contextual. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with General Stanley McChrystal when we come back in just a minute. (music) Zeal is an amazing service that offers professional in-home massages at your door in an hour. After a long day at work or a tense holiday weekend, Zeal is the perfect way to de-stress. With Zeal, you get a professional massage in the privacy of your own home, so you don't have to go all the way to the spa or sit around with a bunch of strangers at the gym. Just open the Zeal app and choose your favorite massage style. You can pick from Swedish deep tissue, sports, prenatal, or sleep massage. An hour later, a licensed massage therapist shows up at your door. They even bring their own massage table. It's like the spa comes to you. The best part is tip is included so you don't have to dig around for cash when you're done. Just rinse off in your own shower and get back to your day, or go straight to bed. Folks, I've been a fan of Zeal since long before they became a sponsor on the show, because the times when I need a massage most are often the times when I'm tired and I least feel like getting in a car and going to a spa, dealing with the check-in and all the chit-chat, the tour of the locker room, getting changed, and you know, you pay a premium for all that stuff too. But with Zeal, a professional massage therapist shows up right at my door, I don't need to change clothes. I don't need to go anywhere. And they bring the table, the massage oils, fresh sheets, even that relaxing spa music at a fraction of the price of actually going to a spa. And the best part, when you're done, the therapist packs up and leaves, and you can unwind however you want. Zeal's great if you have back pain like me or if you just need to decompress after a long day at work or do like I did and order a relaxing Zeal massage for your spouse. Be good to yourself and give Zeal a try. Download the Zeal app and use the promo code KICK for $25 off your first massage. That's Zeal, Z-E-E-L, and promo code KICK. Zeal, wellness on the way. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feels like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas' stay-up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark, and the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take them off. So whether you're a runner, power walker, or power lounger, there's a perfect pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. I like to think of myself as a sock connoisseur. I don't even know how many socks I own, but Bombas have quickly become my favorites. They come in all the colors I like, and you can really feel all the comfort engineering that goes into these socks. The other week, I decided to test out how my feet feel at the end of the day, walking around in regular socks versus a day in Bombas, and let me tell you, there's no competition. These are hands down the most comfortable socks I've ever worn. In fact, I'm wearing a pair of their classic Marl's calf socks right now, and my feet are thanking me for it all day long. Go to Bombas.com slash kick and use the code kick for 20% off your first order. That's Bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash kick, code kick, and you'll get 20% off your first order. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. The results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com podcasts to read about graduates' new careers and salary ranges and explore upcoming courses as well as exciting new careers. You can start building your own new career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron School's WeWork campuses or take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. Enrollment is now open. It's time to future-proof your career and change things, starting with you. Flatironschool.com slash podcast. And now, back to the podcast. I want to talk about a couple of more of these leaders that you profile in the book. Uh, You include not just military leaders, but also people like Walt Disney, Leonard Bernstein, uh, Albert Einstein, even Coco Chanel. Uh, How much knowledge did you have about Coco Chanel coming into this? This is a great admission. I didn't know she was a person. I thought Chanel (laughs) was was just a brand name. Chanel number (laughs)
1: 5. And yet when you study her, It's amazing. Here is an incredible fashion designer, but even more, she's a branding and marketing genius who's an orphan at a young age, works her way up, takes an opportunity at about the time of the First World War to revolutionize fashion, not just in France, but around the world. And then she builds an empire on that to include the fragrance Chanel Number 5 by being both a good business person, but then also being the brand herself. When people bought Chanel products, they were buying Coco Chanel because she dressed a certain way, she acted a certain way, she had a lifestyle, and she invited you to be like Coco, and the best way to do it is wear her clothes, use her perfume, embrace her lifestyle, and it it worked beautifully. As a leader, she was a tough person. She was tough to work for.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, but have... people loved to work for her because... Yeah. She was special. Have you embraced the Chanel lifestyle? (laughs) I'm not that far yet. (laughs) Okay. Um, Probably the figure in this book with whom Americans are least familiar is a Chinese admiral named Zheng He, who is pretty well unknown over here. But in China, he's revered as this great hero. And today he's even become a symbol of China's emergence as a superpower. What does Zheng He say about China's global ambition in the 21st century?
1: Well, he says a lot. He was a 15th century figure, theoretically seven feet tall with a waist five feet around. He'd been castrated at age 10 but then remained loyal to the uh, to the Ming dynasty, which had actually killed his father and castrated him. But, but he led this big, well, seven different voyages of treasure ships uh, out around the world. And China now has pulled his memory. Most people in the West didn't know who he was— pulled his memory up to show that they're a global power, to show that they have always been international. Most of us think of China as the last 200 years, when the Middle uh, Middle Kingdom was very insular and to a great degree backward. Mm -hmm. Now Xi Jinping, with the One Belt, One Road strategy, is saying that was a very temporary thing. What you saw of China in the last 200 years isn't us. We actually are a global nation— we have always been that way, and here, here's proof. And so who a nation pulls up and makes their heroes says an awful lot about what that nation wants to communicate.
0: And I know that you're probably more often asked to comment on Iraq or Afghanistan, but is the rise of China and the state of play in the South China Sea something that you give a lot of thought to these days?
1: Well, I do. Uh, I'm not in government, but anyone who doesn't give a lot of thought isn't thinking economically or de- Diplomatically or potentially militarily, because China, which again had a 200 years of a, a I describe it as a bad weekend, um, <laughs> they are back in a big way. And what we've got to do is relook how we fit in the world. Most Americans have a post World War II view, and right after World War II, America was 46 percent of the world's global domestic product, which is an aberration and not sustainable. Now that we've got the rise of kingdoms like china and other parts of the world i think we need to understand that our role will be interacting not necessarily in opposition but it's going to be complex mm-hmm. and we're going to have to deal with it in real not in a in a way of denying the reality but in a
0: realistic approach you actually include, of all people, to many people's surprise, al-Qaeda and Iraq leader Abu Musab al-Zarqawi among the biographies of leaders in this book. Now, this is the man that you hunted and eventually killed. Uh, what can you learn about leadership from your enemy in combat? Well, it's it's interesting to step
1: back. We took 13 leaders for this book, right. to include Coco Chanel, Harriet Tubman, Margaret Thatcher, Albert Einstein, Leonard Bernstein. So we had a wide range, because... They're not just military leaders or political. But someone I had to put in there was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi because I fought him as part of my task force for two and a half years, and we ultimately killed him in in June of 2006. But I came to respect him. I didn't come to like him. I didn't come to agree with him, and I didn't mourn when he died. But I came to respect a leader. And the thing that was interesting about him, and we pair him with Maximilian Robespierre of the French Revolution, Zarqawi was— Poorly educated, came up with a tough background in an industrial town in Jordan. He became very committed to Islam, the fundamental view of Islam, and believed very heavily in jihad or holy war and wanted to be a mujahideen or holy fighter. And what worked for him was he became a zealot. He became someone so pious, so personally self-disciplined, so obviously committed to his cause that he burned like a hot flame and almost like moths are attracted to that. We're all attracted to people who are very confident, very committed, very zealot-like in their leadership style, as people did with Robespierre. Now, the other thing about Zarqawi is because he was so committed, he got many other people to follow him who didn't share the same level, but they were willing to follow him because his obvious uh, commitment to it. And then he was also, he was a good leader. He was charismatic. He did good things getting around to to talk to his people, basics. And so I could disagree with his cause. I could disagree. He was a psychopath in terms of a murder. But, but I had to respect the effectiveness he had as a leader, and to be honest, had to learn from it.
0: I suppose it's easy to dismiss him as a psychopath and a monster, which he Probably was, but it's not a useful way to go about trying to actually defeat and kill your enemy. It sounds like you must have dedicated a good amount of thought to getting in the mind of your enemy. Was that a pretty dark place? And what did you come to understand about him? Well, it it, it is a dark place to do that. Think what we do in war. We
1: try to dehumanize the enemy, do what armies always do. We call the Germans the Huns. We call the Japanese the Nips. We call the Vietnamese the Gooks. And that's so that they're not human, so it's easier to kill them. Mm -hmm. You're not frightened of them, and you, you don't feel the same empathy. When you actually fight against someone for a while, that changes, because particularly when they turn out to be a very good foe, you have to respect them. And so in the case of any enemy, but particularly Zarqawi, I started with this thing. He, he beheaded a young American, Nick Berg, in 2004 and right. filmed it. And my whole force was just emotionally furious over it, and we committed ourselves to killing him. But over time, a few things happened. First, he was very good at what he did. And then the second is you come to the realization that His perspective is his perspective, and he believes it deeply. I may believe my side. I may be committed to it, but what makes me right and him wrong? And what if I'd been born in Zarka, Jordan, instead of where I was? What I believe is he did, and what if he's as right as I am, just on different sides? And so you start to get a grudging first respect for the effectiveness of your
0: foe, and then you have to have a certain respect that— They might just be as right as we are. The beheadings were sort of a morbid media strategy, but somehow it seemed that it was effective with his own people and, uh, if you will, establishing his brand or the brand of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Talk a little about that and how that was perceived within his circle.
1: Sure. We think that the beheadings were to to scare the West, and they do a little bit Mm -hmm. of that. But what they really did is they signaled to his potential followers that he is so committed to the cause that he's willing to do things that he knows are horrific. ISIS made an art form of this. They committed to people that we are after a righteous cause, but our cause is so righteous that we're willing to do evil to achieve it. When we go back to Robespierre and the French Revolution, here's a guy who yeah, believed in the writings the <laughs> Yeah, he believed in the yeah. writings of Rousseau, mm-hmm. but he became committed that you needed to use terror to achieve virtue. Now there's a contradiction there, but there's sort of a um, an interesting seductive idea. I'm willing to behead 900 Frenchmen in 5 weeks in the center of Paris to build a virtuous society. On the surface, it looks laughable. But many French believed that here we are finally committed to making a change. We're committed to doing whatever it takes to get to virtue. And very similar with Sarkawi. it just has a power to it.
0: Mm-hmm. And Robespierre took more of a, a distanced approach to terror. Uh, he kind of delegated that to his subordinates. And in some cases, he probably wasn't even aware of all the people who were beheaded in his name. Al on the other hand, personally beheaded many people. How do, you, how do you assess that? I really can't make a distinction because, on the one
1: hand, Robespierre's hands were clean. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, the only—the first execution he ever attended was his— And so he kept himself slightly at arm's length, but he was, in fact, part of the driving force behind it. Uh, Zarqawi's trademark was he was up close, his hands were dirty, he was involved, he was doing beheadings, he wore combat clothes. So to me, there's not a big distinction. Uh, Both, on the positive side, shared a a very genuine commitment to their cause— so you really can't doubt that they were real about it uh at the same time both did some pretty horrific things so it's hard to to judge them positively there are no statues to Robespierre
0: around now you go you just won't find them yeah with the proliferation of IED attacks in Iraq and Zarqawi's ability to just elude capture time and time again. In fact, you talk about how oftentimes he traveled completely alone and went through checkpoints in disguise. It's understandable that he sort of took on almost a supernatural mystique in Iraq. And even among the troops, I imagine, trying to defeat him from a morale standpoint for you as a military leader, did you find yourself having to fight against this ghost-like persona and bring him back down to earth in the eyes of your men sometimes?
1: Uh, Absolutely, because
0: he became
1: almost a symbol of our inability to get him. Mm. And so a little like Francis Mary and the Swamp Fox or Mosby from the Civil War, just the fact he's able to operate is impressive to people. It makes him a little bit more powerful And it underwrites or underlines our inability to do that.
0: Now, as you studied leaders for this book, did you find parallels to your own experience? And maybe even as you read about some of their flaws and mistakes, think to yourself, yep, that sounds familiar. I I, I recognize that. I can look back.
1: Countlessly. Almost every leader here. The one that sort of jumped out at me that surprised me was Walt Disney. Oh, really? Because— He had a lot of traits, much more talented than I'll ever be, but he was a good animator, and then he creates this amazing full-length animated picture, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he does it over three years by mortgaging his company, mortgaging the intellectual property to Mickey Mouse, and then pushing his team to create this magnificent first full-length animated movie. And at the time, it was thought to be crazy, but he got people not only to laugh but to cry to animated figures well so he's at the height of his success in 1937 he's still younger than 40 he almost can do no wrong four years later his animators who had done this amazing work for him have a bitter strike against him and when i saw that i go wow they're ungrateful you know here <laughs> through the depression he created yeah. a firm gave him great jobs yeah. and then in 1941 and he reacts badly
0: yeah, he felt the same way you did. <laughs> he thought that they were disloyal, in fact, few
1: accused few of them being communists and whatnot. And and I thought about myself as a leader and I thought about the times when I pushed organizations really hard and I worked really hard myself. And then there were glimmers of people going, No, that's not right. One of my f- reflexive responses was, you know, you're not loyal, you don't see the big picture, you know, you're not you're not willing to work hard enough. And when you see that, it's a little bit like holding a mirror up. Hmm. And it was interesting. Wow. The young people that helped me with this book, they were pretty hard on Walt Disney when we first did the research. And we, we had these discussions how we're going to portray each person. And they were ready to write him off as bad guy. And I kept saying, hey, hey, human. And the reason I was arguing that was, you know, there was a bit of me. The same with Robert E. Lee. He makes this amazing mistake in 1861 And goes to defend slavery. But, you know, in that situation, maybe I'd have done the same thing. In the context of the moment. Who knows?
0: Who's to say? That's right. And so
1: I found at this point in my life, I'm a little bit more forgiving of the human side of it, but in recognition of just how important
0: it is. Yeah. And Walt Disney is a great example of the kind of visionary leader that we tend to idealize, like a Disney or a Steve Jobs, who put the end goal or their product above all else and sometimes don't treat their teams very well. As someone who's been in a position of power with incredibly high stakes, do you relate to that relentless dedication to the mission? And did you give much thought to what the people under your command thought of you? Did you, did you care about that? Or do you have to kind of just not care about that? That's a really good question.
1: Um, people ask me whether I was a zealot when I was fighting against <laughs> Abu Musabh and, and I will have to say to a degree I was. Really? I didn't behead people, but, um, yeah, it became a cause as much as it became a fight. And so I would say that I did care what my people thought of me. I cared deeply. I have to admit that. Um, and I cared deeply about them. But I was willing to push them really hard. It was a period in 2005 when we had to make a very difficult decision, which risked destroying the force, destroying JSOC. And I, we had conversations about it. It said, you're going to put the nation's counterterrorist force at risk. And at that point, I felt it was necessary and right. I still feel it was necessary and right. But if I look back, I wonder whether I could have made any other decision, whether I could have stepped back and been analytical and said, no, the risk is too high, or whether I was emotionally committed to the fight at that point where I made that decision and then rationalized it.
0: Now, when you are commander of JSOC in Iraq— you often went on night missions with your men. Uh, looking back, do you think you would have done that again? Or
1: No, you have to do that. You have um, to. You have to do that because you have to find out what they're doing. You have to understand the conditions. under. It, it was hard. Okay. And they have to understand you're willing to share some of the danger, mm-hmm. etc. They know you're not going to do their job. But if you're not willing to do some of that, your credibility... Uh, wouldn't last long
0: yeah and i suppose that's becoming even more important these days because the commander is usually on base you know that's right leading the charge go to the days of robert yeah. e lee and division and corps
1: commanders were under fire and so mm-hmm. was robert e lee nowadays you have to make a conscious effort but i think it's just as important as ever yeah.
0: now if you were to include your own biography and leaders myth and reality uh what do you think the theme of your chapter might be yeah that's a great
1: one um I I think it is that the most interesting part of my personal experience was the transformation in JSOC as we changed an organization, the nature of it. I think that it would have been about somebody who pushed a change really hard but didn't do the change themselves. I get credit for being this transformational leader. What I was was a person who... Uh, was part of a team that created a transformation. And my contribution was to create an environment in which that transformation could and, and would occur and creating an ecosystem, nurturing it and whatnot. I never had the right answer. I never was smart enough. But I was lucky enough to recognize that people around me could figure out the right answer. And I was had enough humility to know that if somebody else had the right answer, let's go with it.
0: Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Before we go, I don't want to ask you if you have any interest in politics, but is there any scenario down the line where you could see yourself running for office? Never been an ambition of mine. I am at
1: a point now where I think American uh, politics are at a crisis. I think leadership's at a crisis. I think American politics are at a crisis. And so I don't want any American to say that they won't be a part of it. I don't want any American to say they won't vote because they don't care that they wouldn't serve, that they won't run for office, because we're really at an all hands on deck moment.
0: Well, I enjoyed the book. It's called Leaders, Myth and Reality. I highly recommend it to folks. General Stanley McChrystal, it's been an honor. Thanks for talking with me. You're kind to have me. Thank you. Thanks again to General Stanley McChrystal for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, Leaders, Myth and Reality, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore these exciting new careers. You can start building your own career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron's local WeWork campuses, or you can take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com slash podcast, read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is open now. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at @KickAssNewsPod. News Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.